Welcome to the new Glass Tire Pod, the name of which will be determined by uh, High Commission in the next couple weeks. My name is Neil Farso. I'm a guest editor for Glass Tire. I've been writing for them for about two and a half years, and so for this inaugural episode, it seems perfect to have Editor-in-Chief Christina Rees as the first guest, so welcome, Christina. Thank you. Hi, Neil. Hi. You're in San Antonio. I'm in Dallas. Indeed. And this pod is going to be covering art and culture. And over the next and future pods, I'll be talking to artists and curators and people like that. And about a wide range of topics ranging from, you know, contemporary art to things like trickster mythology. So it should hopefully be <laughs> a fun and insouciant listen. And, uh,. Freewheeling, if you will. So, yeah. For all the readers, if if the readers are familiar with Neil's writing, I don't think any of what he just said would come as a surprise. <laughs> he he's a jack of all trades, and and he can talk about pretty much everything, which we like. And it's one of the reasons that we've hired him as a as a guest features editor for the summer. So a podcast was certainly one of the ideas we're excited to do this, but. So I, I think we, were, we decided we would split this podcast uh, into two sections. One is kind of a back, or three, really. I would like to ask you, I know, I know the answer to some of these questions, but I want some, some background on you. So tell, uh, tell Glass Tire World who you are and where you're from and that sort of thing. Uh, so my, as I said, my name is Neil Farso, and I live in San Antonio. That's where my mom's family's from. I was raised in a very small town in southeast Iowa in a meditation community called Transcendental Meditation that probably some people have heard of, or maybe they even practice in. So I had kind of an unusual upbringing, and. Then my professional career has been uh, somewhat unorthodox. I. Uh, I am a lawyer, and I also have an MFA in creative writing poetry, and I've done a lot of various day jobs, and then my real passion, though, has always been, you know, creative things, and in particular, art and music. I founded a record label in 2006 called Unseen Worlds. It's still going, and we've done a lot of different things with that in terms of album releases and concerts and that kind of thing and then uh, I started writing for Glass Tire in late 2015 when I moved back to Texas and since then that's kind of become clear that being involved in the world of art and culture is the kind of primary thing that I want to focus on and so that's kind of where I am right now living in San Antonio uh, surrounded by my family, everyone else, including my sister, Joey Farso, who's a Texas artist and a professor at uh, Texas State, and my other sister and my parents. Excellent artist, by the way. A lot of you will have heard of her if you read Glass Tire. She's one of our favorites. She's, she's how we found Neil, actually. Yeah, she's great, exactly. It was through my, my sister's very sweet nepotism that I was linked up to, <laughs> to Glass Tire. And, uh, yeah, so, so that's pretty much my background in brief and it's great it's it's great to have a feeling of doing something that feels authentic to yourself as opposed to you know just a agonizing grind of wearing a mask or whatever so 
Now, hang on. You did you you practiced law overseas for a little while, did you not? Were you in China or? I was. I lived in Beijing for two years, from 2012 to 2014, and I worked for a law firm there that was a local law firm that helped Western companies enter China in terms of like getting the appropriate permits and business structures necessary so that they could do business in China. And that was an interesting and fun experience. Living in Beijing was great. I loved it. Uh, I moved back in 2014, um, which was bittersweet, but it was definitely for the best. It is an intense place to live. It's hard to be super far from home, from family, etc. And, you know, it was like hard on me physically, too. It's like intense to live in a city that has that level of pollution and you know, just just general. I had a persistent cough that lasted for like literally nine months. I'm, I remember when I decided to move back is like I got extremely sick sometime in the spring of 2014. I had like a bronchial infection and I woke up in the middle of the night and I like I had a coughing fit that lasted like 20 minutes. And I just remember thinking like, is this it? Like, am I going to die now? Oh. <laughs> and so after that, I was like, OK, it's time to move home. Um, I can't keep doing this. I don't want to become like one of my friends, expat friends that are in their 40s, but they look like uh, John Hurt right before he died. So, it, right, uh, right. Oof. Okay. Well, okay. So speaking, of, let's go back to family. Let's go back to kind of the origin story of Neil. Um, one of the things. Let me just say this: we're gonna we're we're going to do. Glasser is going to do a video series coming up. Uh, co-produced uh organized and produced by wally films also out of san antonio they're gonna go they're gonna ask san antonio artists to begin with san antonio artists some questions and we at glass tire have been sort of slaving over these questions and honing just the the questions that seem like the right questions to ask now you and i are not visual artists we're just around it all the time right but a couple of the questions that i think are interesting and since you grew up in a household with a musician dad and uh, and a sister who's grown up to be a good artist. Um, one of the questions that the the Wally Films people will be asking artists in San Antonio is, um, "What's the first art that you remember?" And you grew up in this TM community. Was there any art? Did you see art? Yeah, well, definitely. Um, so the the traditional meditation community was like started by an Indian man who eventually assumed the name of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and he came to the West in the late 50s. And so the upbringing that I had was very Hindu-centric. Um, I know much more about Hindu mythology th than I do about Christianity. And so one of the earliest memories I have is definitely, in some ways, some either cartoon or comic or painting or something like that involving the Ramayana, which is, you know, one of the Hindu legendary myths in terms of Ram and the Princess Sita and then the demon Ravana from what's now the island Sri Lanka. And so it was something involving that. That loomed very large to me as a child. I, so that's definitely one of my first memories of art. Also, honestly, one of my first media experiences that I can remember is seeing The Exorcist when I was five years old which Ooh. was a mistake and has probably caused a lot of 
problems in my life that <laughs> I, I, I can attribute yeah. to that. An older family yep. friend who is about four years older than me, for some reason, showed that to me when I was five years old. And then for about the next four or five years, even though I was not raised in a very like Christian uh, upbringing at all, I was just completely terrified of the devil in a very catholic way and my parents were mm -hmm. always like what what is this coming from <laughs> so that 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 has loomed very large for me and i think my love of of horror movies and just generally sort of twisted and upsetting and disturbing things may have been sort of rooted from that so um, and then the first piece of visual art I can really remember is probably when I was like six or seven going to the Chicago Art Institute and seeing uh, Mark Chagall's uh, America Windows, that, that stained glass piece there. Mm -hmm. And which, you know, was a, a very profound and beautiful experience, you know, to, to see kind of this incandescent stained glass and not necessarily understanding the references, but the experience, the aesthetic experience was, was certainly uh, exciting and memorable, you know. What about you? What, what's your first? I, um, it's funny that I like it that you named The Exorcist as one of the first pieces of art that you ever <laughs> saw. I mean, if we're doing like books and movies, I had a similar situation. My dad was real into Kubrick and he was very into, in ter also in terms of just literature, he was really into Ray Bradbury and I got my hands on this stuff too early. I got my hands, and he would bring home, he would bring these kinds of things home before they got a divorce, and then when they did get a divorce, then he was this bachelor guy, and then he was married, and then he was in Odessa, and we'd go spend summers out at his house, and we just had access to all this stuff that he, I just, I think he thought we wouldn't be interested in it, and so he didn't hide mm -hmm. it. But, yeah, I mean, reading Stephen King's short stories almost as soon as I could read the written word was a bad idea, but I did it. <laughs> right. Any Kubrick film that was out before 75, 76, I feel like I saw it by the time I was seven or eight years old. Um, that was my knuckles cracking. Um, I So, yeah, I, there was some there was that kind of slightly rarefied thing going on on my dad's side. My mom was much more just into art art and she actually did some painting. My grandmother was a really pretty good artist. My aunt is an excellent artist. My cousins were a fabulous artists. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of them ended up growing up to be a graphic designer and commercial artist, um, Doug Johnson on the West coast. He did die in a motorcycle accident when he was in his late twenties. Oh, no. But, um, this is this is a guy who you could just sit down with him and say, "Would you draw a thing for me?" And he could just do it, and it was gorgeous. It was a gorgeous drawing, and he could do it from a young age. But you know, we had also just the regular kind of Americana stuff. We had the big coffee table book of Norman Rockwell, mm -hmm. and you know, I think we had some kind of art prints on the wall that would have been like probably posters from museum exhibitions. The first like exhibitions I remember seeing at the DMA especially the ones that made any sort of mark on me I was a teenager when there was a Cindy Sherman show mm -hmm. um, you know that kind of opened things up for me I feel like I wasn't really paying attention to contemporary art in, the, in a big way until college although I will say in junior high school I got a subscription to Interview Magazine Warhol was already somehow a thing for me when I was 12 or 13 mm -hmm. and 
my whole fascination with New York City and New York City in the 70s and 80s. Sure. And that whole that whole strata was just very, very informed by reading Interview Magazine every month when I was still a kid. Right. And, you know, Interview is kind of glammy. And, of course, now it's not really the same thing at all. And well, they all it's died not, when I was yeah, in high it's, school. Yeah, it's but gone now. It just the Interview is no more. It declared bankruptcy and shut down. So... R.I.P. to an era. Oh, well, for, there's some news. I didn't even know that. Yeah. yeah. So, I, but it was very art oriented. It was very downtown. And so mom started taking me to New York when I was a kid, when I was about 12 or 13. And we'd go every every year in the wintertime. But um, I was always like, well, can we go downtown to this shop called Rocks in Your Head so I can look at the books and <laughs> blah, blah. You know, I had these weird ideas when I was a kid. And this was in like 1984 and 85, downtown New York was still kind of a... Oh, yeah. <laughs> part of it was still kind of apocalyptic. You know, it was it was pretty, pretty intense. But... Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's kind of a mishmash for me. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Saying that the Cindy Sherman show is the thing that kind of, for you know, was revelatory and sort of brought you into a new world or whatever. I mean, for me, definitely seeing, and again, this was like very early. I think I saw Blue Velvet for the first time when I was 11, and that completely changed my life. Like, seeing that movie and seeing what movies could be and like how they could be both arch and extremely you know dark and also sort of romantic at the same time just the the coexistence of different and opposite values in art in a way that was extremely like fluid was super mind-blowing to me as as a preteen basically and that that really changed everything for me in terms of what you know, I I knew or thought was possible in terms of creativity. You know, and I and those those are great experiences to have when you're a kid to have something like that. And hopefully, it's with something that is good and not something where you're like, um, I don't know, like you know, I saw Scarface when I was ten years old, and, or something like you know, something that is that points you down a good a good road. It's interesting, though, how much for me and maybe for you, but I mean, one of the things that I remember so much about the Sydney Sherman show when I was in high school is that my mom didn't like it. She found it disturbing and upsetting. Mm -hmm. And for me, somehow that registered in an incredibly positive way. Like, you know, art can be really pretty subversive and upsetting and sort of rock and roll and just and I, and I love my mom. She has very good taste, but she does, she does, you know, she can't deal with the Chapman brothers. She can't deal with a lot of contemporary art. Sure. And I still tend to um, gravitate toward the more subversive stuff. I just, you know, it's something that's in my veins at this point. And, uh, and, or, you know, my parents not understanding Warhol. You know, they just don't get it. They didn't, they never were able to really grasp his entire. Mo, um, and somehow I liked that. Then that was the way for me to continue to kind of separate my ego from my parents' ego, um, and have this thing in my life that was separate from them. And you know what? It's still true. I'm, and I'm not saying that they don't understand what I do at Glass Tire, but you know, probably m much of the work that I like is is stuff that would go over in in my generation would go over our parents' head or would not be something that they would like. And 
I'm still formed by that. I think if I think that's just I don't know if that's for better or for worse. It's probably for worse. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's definitely uh, true with me too. I mean, is is from a a very early age I felt the same way and I felt an affinity to transgressive or subversive art that gave one an experience of a break or a transportive experience and that was uplifting to me mm-hmm. regardless of whether or not the subject matter of it or the feeling of it was upsetting or disturbing like the process of experiencing some art that was vital to use kind of the term that the literary critic Harold Bloom likes to employ in terms of not talking about characters whether or not they're good or evil but whether or not they're vital so it's like Captain Ahab is vital you know the judge in Blood Meridian is vital and that's that's a uh, a concept that's that's very powerful to me you know it's just experiencing something that's that's vital and regardless of whether or not you know the 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 conceit of it or the the meaning of it is is disturbing is is secondary to the experience of just being like well this was powerful and I, I i was taken somewhere and that's uplifting to me and that from a young age that's always been the way it was and it, it's a very funny thing like growing up in the tm movement and then getting when i was a teenager i was obsessed with david lynch and just you know and also as a family we watched twin peaks when it came out and i was nine when it broadcast so my whole family liked Mm. it and you know I've always been a lynch head basically since then but as a teenager my parents were like this is too dark you know because in the TM movement it's like things that are art that is negative or unsettling you shouldn't focus on because there is a principle of what you put your attention on grows so you shouldn't focus on negative art but in a mm-hmm. hilarious twist that is truly almost lynchian david lynch has been a, me- a meditating and practicing transcendental meditation since the early 70s and has become more and more involved yes. with the movement and since the maharishi died in 2008 David Lynch is like kind of now sort of the head of the American transcendental meditation movement, and it's one of the reasons. It's true. And it's, it's one true. of the reasons why he didn't really make any new work from 2016 when or uh, 2006 when Inland Empire came out until Twin Peaks: The Return this last year. So it was like a, sp- a space of 11 years where he did no new work. Um, so that's that's extremely funny to me. There's like a lot of pictures of like, you know, my parents' friends and even my parents, you know, on meditation cor- courses and everyone's wearing sort of cream-colored suits and holding flowers and that kind of thing and doing, uh, you know, hands together like prayer symbol with David Lynch, which is which is very very funny to me. So with David Lynch, the director of Inland Empire. Yeah, that's. I mean, so what you just said about vital. You know, when you and I were on the phone the other day, and I was, and you, and I said, I I feel so stupid because I'm reading the Wikipedia entry for Hereditary, the new book that's out. I mean, the new movie yeah. that's out, the new horror movie that's out, that's getting a lot of attention. Because I know I'll never go see it, but I want to know the entire plot, and I want to know, 
you know what drives it because i realize that it's a thing that people are paying attention to that it's it's you know it's popped up and it's a thing and i want to know what it is but i want i so i don't i talk about how i like these transgressive or subversive things and in contemporary art i can generally handle it because you can look away you can walk away it's not mm-hmm. a narrative thing that has you glued to your seat for two hours or whatever but horror movies i can't deal with but i so 100 percent understand their point and their what's necessary about them um, I, I'm trying to think of a work of art, a work of contemporary visual art that just frightens me so much that I that I can't deal with it. But it's really movies where that gets to be that gets to be a problem in some some books. But um, uh, I'm I'm very susceptible to nightmares. So yeah, I, to watch I saw Hereditary last night and I enjoyed it. It was not as scary as I was anticipating but then again since i've done a deep dive on french extremism movies over the past couple years i feel like my psyche and sort of just tolerance for for horror is just completely blasted into the the ether like i there's very few things the only movie over the past the only two movies of the past like 10 years that profoundly scared and unsettled me to the point that I had like recurring nightmares from are both French extremism movies which is um, Irreversible and Martyrs so I would basically say that no one should watch those movies like they're good quote unquote but in the same way that I don't really think you need to see like Pasolini's Sallow 120 Days of Sodom it's just it's an experience that is is so um intense and and painful that it's kind of like a life's too short sort of thing but um hereditary was uh was pretty fun uh well that's a weird way of putting it but it's it's worth seeing and it definitely employs one of the reasons why i like horror movies is that there's a shot called the monumental uh monumental terror which is like so at the beginning of the exorcist you know the shot when they're in a rack of like the he finds that little demon or whatever and it focuses on that you know or the end of the wicker man or the hallway where the twins are in the shining you know which is just some sort of some sort of shot that has a kind of foreboding horror to it that can be felt elementally like on the on in your body kind of and that that's that's an experience well lynch is lynch is the best lynch is the one who manages to somehow trap and send out and with terrible resonance the feeling of actually being in a nightmare oh yeah he's the best he's the he is the ult the ultimate in terms of articulating through the language of film the experience of being in a nightmare like there's never been anyone that's lived and there probably won't be anyone that just in the same way that you know like tarkovsky as a filmmaker had the same fluency with dreams not necessarily nightmares but just with what a dream felt like that's what lynch is is kind of like the opposite side to a nightmare and so yeah and so lynch is the master of the monumental horror shot like you know i mean in terms of lost highway robert blake and lost highway or you know the ear and i think mulholland drive as well yeah i've actually i've seen so many of these movies that you're talking about i'm saying that i never watched horror movies but <laughs> right. i've seen salo i've seen irreversible i've seen mulholland drive the dumpster scene but the whole idea of, the, of invoking dread yeah it's for the two best. hours straight 
is amazing yeah. and and lynch is the best and and you're right i'm not sure and that's why we say lynchian and we use lynchian for almost everything but what we kind of mean is this foreboding dread leading up to a sense that there may be this moment of it which happens in a nightmare of, right oh well and you you know you wake up and you think you're having a heart attack and it's the worst right but uh yeah, I mean, that part, yeah, the dumpster scene in, in Mulholland Drive is, like, maybe my favorite scene ever in a movie in terms of of what a perfect <laughs> vignette that is because it's so funny at the same time. I mean, like, the mm. idea of being like, oh, I've had this bad dream and I'm now going to cure that by, like, actually going and confronting that and then it turns out that it's true is just, you know, this great... Ugh sort of dream logic that is so profoundly terrifying but it's also just so hilarious to me I mean just that idea it's like there's like a in a very kind of gallows like almost like Samuel Beckett style way of of humor but it's I love that scene so much I love that actor that plays that I can't remember his name that plays the guy that's talking to his friend about the the dream um so so yeah Mulholland Drive maybe the maybe the best Lynch movie it's hard to say I mean I I, I uh I go back and forth on that a lot, but it's certainly. The I'm a little scared. I'm a little scared to watch Inland Empire. Actually, I haven't seen that one, but um, uh, Twin Peaks I thought was really terrifying. Generally, yeah. I'm surprised your parents let you watch it at age nine. I know um, it was just one of those things. It's it's strange, but uh, yeah, I mean, Inland Empire is pretty much like almost like video art too. It really it really crosses the line from being like a narrative. It's barely like a narrative movie in any way. And it's shot on video, and it has, I mean, like, I don't know if this is true. And it looks like it. Yeah, I don't know if this is true. I mean, I definitely suspect that um, Ryan Tricardin is extremely influenced by Inland Empire. That that, because he, I mean, I know that he was doing stuff before that or whatever, but in terms of his, like, ascent and becoming, you know, kind of fairly famous in the art world happened post-2006, and the aesthetic of his videos and the way that Inland Empire is there's a real commonality between those two which is that it's it's kind of like funny and lurid but it's also deeply unsettling in some way you know we should start a we should start a a little uh, kind of a drive by series. It's like if you like this, <laughs> yeah, you might like this because I love Ryan Treacard's work. I think it's yeah, me too. I think it's amazing. Awesome. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think I it's mean, awesome. A, I mean, I, I don't I don't mean to say and, that in any way to like denigrate him. Oh no, or, I, I wasn't getting um, that. But it's like if you like Ryan Treacard's work, you should watch Inland Empire. Yeah. And if I watched Inland Empire through that lens of like, well, I really liked Ryan Treacard, maybe it would help me not be so terrified the entire time yeah yeah i don't know but this and that um so well speaking of movies um earlier this week there was a trailer a trailer that the white house made for trump to take over to um to his meeting with the leader of north korea yes so that i mean that trailer, quote unquote, I mean, first of all, it's so strange because I don't think that Donald Trump has probably watched a movie in its entirety since like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, most likely. Like since he was. And like, it shows. It really does show because it's not, it's not really like, it has no, 
similarity to any movie trailer. Like, it has a similarity to a Scientology video. That's what it feels like. Like, it doesn't... Like, it's supposed to be... And then it says, Destiny Pictures Presents. Like, it's supposed to be some sort of, like, narrative thing. But it's just completely nonsensical. It's, like, just this weird sort of kind of fascistic, like, infomercial that... It's an infomercial. Yeah. It feels very dated. I mean, it doesn't look like any trailer that comes out these days. No. It doesn't sound like any trailer. One of the things that's really funny to me is the narrator, at one point, he's talking about, you know, history repeating itself. We're going into the cycles of war. What does he say? Something like in the atrocities of the 20th century. Yeah. But he has this kind of, like, little laugh behind his voice. <laughs> in the atrocities of the 20th century. Yeah. <laughs> What the hell is this? This is all so crazily misgaged, but it's very funny to me. It's ve- it seems like a parody. It totally seems like a parody, but everything seems like a parody now, and that's like the that's the continuing strangeness of the time that we live where it's like on the one hand, the things that are going on and with the as I was saying to you earlier, with the reapproachment of North Korea is like the least offensive thing to Trump about me or about Trump to me, which is, yeah, I hope that they, you know, do come to an agreement. It's crazy that the war is technically not ended since 1953 and it would be a great thing for the world. But, you know, with the litany of just like sort of horrible things, like literally in Texas now, there's like essentially like concentration camp for children, which I don't really think is a. Yes is an exaggeration to use that phrase and on the outside of what i mean of what is a shuttered walmart there's a mural of trump with a quote from art of the deal that the children will see when they enter and just that is so horrible and it's almost difficult to process and at the same time it's so absurd it's like if you were to even tell someone something like that like four years ago it's like they would just think that you were you'd lost your mind but it's real apparently it's real and so that's the you know that's the the kind of the constant state we find ourselves in is that you feel like you might lose your ability to be surprised your days but i find that i never do i this constantly am just like how is this real how is this the the world that we live in because a lot of the things that Trump is doing too are not like that different than and I say this as someone that you know politically is fairly like leftist and thus has a dim view of America and the American empire and imperial project so it's like a lot of the things he's doing are not necessarily unprecedented but just the scenario and the the ambience of everything as personified by this trailer makes it especially insane it does it does and to me what seems so clear and what i what i really question his 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 base his support base is like how did i not see that i mean essentially this is almost like let's make a trailer for two narcissists 101 like this is like basic psychology that was used in this trailer. Yeah. Let's let let's play up to the egos of two particular men who really want to believe in their own importance. And that's all it is so transparent. It's incredibly transparent that it makes it makes them seem like children to me. I don't know how Kim Jong Un took it. He may have thought it was really silly and stupid, but I think Trump thinks it's pretty great 
the way, you know, a kid might think something is great if he got a, a video made about him on his birthday. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, the thing with it has no it has no role in the state, you know, in the in the in the in the on the kind of political the world political stage is the silliest and craziest thing, but I still just don't uh, on a daily basis. I still don't understand how his base, how his has his support voting group can look at what he's doing, including the trailer. And th- but then again, they're watching that NRA channel and watching all the ridiculous childlike stuff that goes on there. So I don't know what, I don't know. I'm kind of out of this conversation. I guess I figured that out after election day. Yeah. I mean, the idea of like watching a video like that or really like pretty much anything. I mean, when Trump disinvited the Philadelphia Eagles from coming to the white house for, you know, the ceremony for being Super Bowl champions because some of them didn't want to come. Or, and then instead, they just essentially had, like, a listening party for the national anthem and God Bless America, where a bunch of, you know, schlubby staffers and aides sweating and, you know, khakis and Oxford shirts stood around the White House lawn while the military band played that. And it's like... The idea of seeing that and then being like, finally, honor's back in America, you know, finally we respect our flag, or likewise watching that video and being like, finally a leader who doesn't apologize for America. The idea of like actually having those reactions sincerely is almost unfathomable to me. Like I literally can't imagine responding to that. I can imagine cynically being like, I don't care. He's doing things that I like. He's cutting my taxes or, you know, I'm a racist person. And so he's, you know, like persecuting non-white people, which is that what I want, you know, if, if those are yeah. ultimately your motivations, then you don't really care if it's corny or ridiculous. But there does seem to be a large faction of the country that buys this trickly bullshit. And that's interesting to me, I guess. I mean, it's, you know, kind of appalling, too. It's just one of those things where you're just... All you can really say is, wow, but... <laughs> I mean... It, it, you know, it's it speaks to the it speaks to the the problem that we're dealing with. Even even you know even just doing this podcast, you know, we have a certain set of interests. We're able to project ourselves a certain distance. We're able to find uh, sympathy and empathy through books and movies and art. We're not the artists, which is probably a good thing. If we're lacking the imagination to know what it's like to be to feel great about Trump, um, I'm not claiming to be an artist. I think that. Uh, Maybe I just lack imagination, but I'm I'm right there with you. And I think the disconnect in this country is is very much in evidence through, I mean, just this conversation. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's it's and it's getting worse by the day. It is getting worse by the day. Uh, and the thing is, is that the 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 avatar of all this of of Trump essentially becoming the avatar for conservatism in America, which is like highly symbiotic where he is the vessel through which they can kind of achieve what a lot of their things that they've been wanting to do for a long time and have been doing for a long time. But then he is this person where it's just like, it, it is this kind of like weird event horizon of someone that is barely recognizable as a human being in the sense that they seem to have no friends, no love, 
no laughter, no taste. They don't even really seem to like anything aside from watching TV of themselves. They have no joy mm-hmm. in living in the world. Like, as a rich guy, his tastes are so depressing and pedestrian of liking well-cooked steaks, well-cooked burgers, fast food, you know, Diet Coke, like... I have never, I have no idea, and nor does anyone, of what he actually likes in terms of, you know, art or film or books or music. And I would bet, you know, anything I had that the answer is nothing. He likes nothing. He doesn't, he doesn't watch Mm -hmm. film. He doesn't listen to music. He doesn't read books. He probably hasn't read a book that wasn't written by himself. And honestly, he hasn't probably even read the books that he quote unquote wrote since he oh i don't think he's read that yeah no the last book he probably read was like a separate piece or something like that in high school at whatever private high school he went to or whatever like or to kill a mockingbird or something like that like whatever i can guarantee you he read the cliff's notes I yeah 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 exactly he didn't even read the book he just cribbed the notes from no. someone else from some other kid that he bullied or whatever and so it's like it, it really does feel like you know the end state of like privileged white id like it's just like let it run and then eventually it's just it's almost nothing it's just like an electrical current or something you know it's like it's the hollow it's the hollowness of that trailer yeah that's what we're left with the trailer right exactly i mean that trailer it's just uh, uh, there's an unreality to it because it's it's such obvious bullshit and there's just a bunch of like just this stupid incongruous like shorthand stuff of like triumphalism like horses running in a field or like someone dunking a basketball and it has like almost no meaning whatsoever i mean the entire video has like almost no meaning it's just it's it's essentially gibberish and you know that came and went like it was nothing you know and that's just like a normal daily thing now like i feel like that's one of the differences is that if a prior president would have shown something like that it would have sort of been like a cane mutiny like situation like oh no like they've really lost it but it's like the overton window has the overton window has shifted so far that it's just like it is what it is it's it's barely even registers as a news item you know that that and that they probably spent like you know fifty thousand dollars or something like that, like producing that video too, which is so funny, you know. Um, and I'm a and I'm a really crap video editor, and I do it every week, and and I I enjoy doing the top five, but I could have put that trailer together in about three hours using <laughs> right, just you know right. It's very slapshot, yeah. That's exactly what they did, and do it in iMovie for for no less. You know, to me, one of the most telling things about it, it, for my psychology and maybe the psychology of a whole lot of left-leaning people, is that I'm watching the trailer and I'm so bored two minutes in. And I'm like, I can't believe this is a four-minute trailer. I can't believe I've got to watch another two minutes of this because it's a non-event. It's dumb. I'm ready to click over to some other piece of news. This is just another thing he's done that's really stupid. Um can I move on now? And, yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's definitely something in, in the current time. I mean, the amount of just, you know, depressing news, ephemera and 
some combination of the two and then the sheer inanity is like very overwhelming to where you do develop kind of like a reactionary ADD to almost everything where you're just like, can I click over? You know, that becomes the thing. Like, can I click over to something else? It's just the, the, the default position to be in because it's just like, I don't know. It's a, a constant state of what I would describe as like manic exhaustion is how I feel. And so one of the reasons why I like and I'm interested in art and in culture and, you know, and in people taking the time to create art and host it in a gallery and is that it does, you know, to kind of loop it back to the beginning is like offer, you know, a break or some sort of some sort of loop in the weave to enter into for a second and to remove yourself from from that experience, which is which is necessary and it's it's restorative and it's you know vital so and you know and and smart and interesting forms of dissent are happening throughout you know artists are making some very very interesting work in response to this environment and we're lucky to be doing what we're doing i think we're lucky to be living in texas i think living in a border state during uh, this administration is talk about vital. I mean, we're seeing some stuff happening. Yeah, I and, mean, it's it's yeah, um, we really are, and I mean, it's very, it's a very intense and crazy. I mean, and and Texas as a state has always been charged. It's a charged state. If you live somewhere like say it is a charged state. Minnesota, it's like not that much has happened in Minnesota, but a lot of things have happened. Mm-hmm. And not to hate on Minnesota. I mean there's a lot of things that have happened there. But Texas is a very intense place and there's a lot of history there and there's a lot of history ha- happening currently right now. And Yes. It's I agree, it is. I'm glad to be living here, at least if nothing else, to be able to bear witness and know what's going on, you know, which is that you can't really escape that. Yeah, to bear witness is it. You can't escape that here. I mean, it's happening so close to to where we live, and yeah, there is some shit going down in in Texas, and uh, you know, the future of Texas, in a lot of ways, I kind of feel like will be reflective of the future of of the u.s too and so it's like yeah. either yeah it will transform into something that is more egalitarian and diverse and more reflective of the population or essentially it will become um basically an ethno state with uh walls and concentration camps like those are the sort of two paths to where it will go and I think that that's essentially the US as well so you know hopefully it's the Mm -hmm. former um, but we'll see well on that note on that note yeah on that uh, happy note uh, uh, onward and upward uh, we have to keep we've got to keep on and um, keep covering what we cover and uh, do what we're doing so well I I thank you for this thank you for coming on on. yeah it's great and I look forward to to talking more and to, and to to being on board in an editorial capacity at Glass Tire and going forward with this great project. Well, 
Uh, I envy that you're in San Antonio uh, because I love it. I love that city. It's a nice place. And um, hopefully I will be seeing you in person soon. Same. Yeah. Well, thanks, Christina, and I'll talk to you soon.